Welcome to Confluence Investment Management Podcast. This is the second part of the 2016 Geopolitical Outlook. In the first part of this series, we covered the U.S. election transition and the rise of Western populism. In this podcast, we will cover the small-scale Islamic terrorism, the weakening of the EU, and the trouble in the South China Sea. We are broadcasting from our offices in beautiful downtown Webster Groves. I'm Kaisa Stuckey, investment strategist, and I'm joined today by one of my favorite people, Bill O'Grady, our chief market strategist. So let's jump right into the small-scale Islamic terrorism and the rise of it. Let's go back to the 9-11 attacks and look at what has changed since then that we do not see these large-scale horrific attacks. Rather, we see small-scale, one-of-a-kind attacks that we saw in Paris. Well, one of the things that uh, Osama bin Laden and his followers uh, grew up with during the uh, Soviet-Afghan War was they they watched and and basically were supported by uh, Western intelligence agencies and they learned how they worked and so Osama bin Laden figured out after a while that these um, uh, these Western intelligence agencies were very good at penetrating uh, groups and getting people in on the inside and so. Uh, Al-Qaeda worked very hard on operational security and went out of their way to keep moles from, from infiltrating the, the core group. And, and the, the good thing about that was they were able to then uh, plan and execute large-scale terrorist acts uh, and get away with them essentially because the intelligence agencies were in the dark. The, the bad news is that it's very difficult to grow uh, your your terrorist base uh, when you're so reluctant to let new people in. And so in the process of generating these attacks, you're going to lose some people. Some people are just going to be sacrificed in, in, the, in the operation. Others will be found out uh, during the operation. And... When you try to then replace these people, you're always at risk that the person you're replacing them with turns out to be actually a double agent. And so um, after 9-11, when when the the intelligence agencies around the world were actively trying to undermine al-Qaeda, they they found themselves in a situation where two things happened. One was they couldn't grow very quickly to replace the people they had lost in, in all the operations that they had done up to 9-11. And secondly, uh, all the signal capturing apparatus that the United States and other nations have at their disposal began to focus on where uh, al-Qaeda operated. And, and in the end, um, al-Qaeda was pretty much left with couriers as the as their way of, of inf, you know, sending out information and messages to their followers. And essentially, they have lost their ability to do these large-scale attacks because 
the intelligence agencies know what to look for and um, have can get people on the inside. Yeah. The small scale seems that these are one of a kind, lone wolf, they go off on their own. It would be almost impossible for an intelligence agency to discover this. So who who could fight this? Is it more local? Is it more police? Um, almost listening to phones, reading emails, reading messages over the over the internet that's bordering on civil liberties. This is a good news, bad news problem. Um, the, the good news is that the kind of large-scale horrific attacks that we saw uh, at 9-11 against the USS Cole, uh, against the embassies in, in Africa, are much less likely. doesn't mean they can't happen. Uh, mistakes occur, things get overlooked, but but they're a lot less likely because they require years of planning. And, and uh, you know, even in, as the 9-11 Commission backtracked over the whole 9-11 event, there were certain critical things that were missed. Um, a lot of those had to do with the silo effect between agencies. A lot of those silos have been broken down, so it's a lot tougher to pull these off. Small-scale attacks, on the other hand, um, you get four or five people together with with weapons. They can do lots of damage. They can't do. They can't bring down plus hundred story buildings, uh, but they can do the kind of things you saw in San Bernardino or the things that you saw in Paris. Um, it, it it these don't take a a lot to plan. They do require some, uh, and for Western societies, coping with these is difficult because to some extent they're not a whole lot different than organized crime and we have lived with organized crime permanently I mean we, we always have to deal with organized crime of all different genres um, the uh, these groups can be undermined by good police work uh, if you look at the geopolitical reports we have written over the years uh, it's not uncommon every year to have one or two reports about a foiled attack. Uh, the underwear bomber, uh, the shoe bomber, the, you know, there's just a whole series of, of these things where a guy wants to get a bomb and, and uh, you know, he ends up buying a bomb from an I, uh, FBI informant. Most of the time, these things, we, we actually do a fairly good job in, in getting a lot of these. Well, we, you can't get them all. Uh, the marathon bombers in Boston are a prime example. I mean, you know, are you going to start registering pressure cookers? Uh, you, you, you probably not. Um, and so then it really comes down to an issue of, of civil liberties. Are you going to start in the United States, for example, uh, to start to undermine Second Amendment uh, ownership, gun ownership rights? Are, are you going to become invasive in... Uh, attaching emails and things like that. And uh, I think the president's last press conference or the last interview with NPR, what he was really kind of saying is, look, there's going to be a certain level of this we're just going to have to live with. And to to wipe them all out is, is probably going to be just as impossible as it is to wipe out 
your standard issue carjackings and, and liquor store robberies. Uh, it's not a probably a proper thing for a, a political figure to say because that isn't what people want to hear. But but the fact of the matter is this is what we're living with. Now, uh, on the one hand, this is a good thing because it's much better, it's a much better problem to deal with than trying to stop people from flying airliners into tall buildings. On the other hand, uh, it does suggest we're going to be living with this problem and trying to deal with it. it it's, it's going to be difficult. Yeah. And it also dovetails right in with the rise of populism because when people do feel that their civil liberties have been violated, now, of course, there is uh, a, a balance you need to achieve between safety and civil liberties. But when people do feel that their civil liberties have been violated, they turn to populism and getting rid of all of the the big government, the big all all the big guys that big bad guys that they imagine in their mind. Well, it, it actually kind of cuts two ways. On the one hand, it, it does lead to a, a, a Rand Paul type. Let's let's stop the government from basically reading your mail and, and listening to your phone calls. On the other hand, when people are afraid for their safety. Uh, they want to protect themselves from what is perceived as the other. And uh, so then you have uh, calls on restrictions of, of uh, Islam, uh, Muslim immigrants, uh, things like that. So uh, it, it, it does cut both ways, but it is also part. It's both nationalistic, anti-immigrants, and at the same time, uh, anti-government. And thus, it, it increases it increases the risk of policy mistakes. Is where it kind of boils down to in terms of markets. Yeah, yeah. As we as we learn to live in this new normal environment where it, this happens, things could go wrong in trying to fix it. So that was the rise of Islamic small scale Islamic terrorism. Let's uh, turn to the weakening of the European Union. The, the European Union was really created to prevent another world war happening in the European plains. But recently, the European Union itself, as well as the Eurozone, has come under fire as economies have slowed and we've seen the refugee crisis. What, what do you think would um, happen next, Bill? Well, this is one of the more interesting things we've been seeing. When the, when the Eurozone was created when the, at the Maastricht Treaty, the, the understanding was is that at some point, every member of the European Union would eventually adopt the Euro and be part of the Eurozone. Um, with the idea that there would be some of the smaller, less developed economies that would not be ready to join and thus they would have to hit certain standards uh, and uh, for inflation, for growth, for economic governance. So, for example, when the initial Eurozone rolled out at 12 countries, uh, Greece wasn't able to join for a couple of years because their inflation was too high and their government debts were too large. Um, on the other hand, Britain and Denmark opted 
through referendum not to join, that they had rejections from their population. They wanted to keep their own currencies. And so the, the initial thought was, okay, well, you can do that for a while, but at some point you will join this. And that was sort of the quiet agreement that everyone made. Well, recently David Cameron, the prime minister of Britain, intimated that, you know what, we're probably going to keep the pound forever. And the members of, of the Eurozone were taken aback by this because the belief was that eventually Britain would stay in the, in the EU and eventually join the Eurozone. Uh, Denmark has shown no indication it's prepared to give up its currency. And, and recently Poland has decided that, you know, having our own currency is kind of a nice thing. What this means for the Eurozone is that you would have a, the dreaded two-speed Europe. You'd have the Eurozone members of the EU and the non-Eurozone members of the EU uh, who would not be governed by necessarily the same policy. They certainly wouldn't have the same central bank. And in the terms of Denmark, uh, they tend to peg to the Euro, so it's really not that big a deal. They, they may have an independent central bank, but if you have a peg currency, you really don't. Uh, but in terms of Britain, pound fro- floats freely. And this is sort of, we, we've been watching carefully over the years to see how far does the Eurozone and the EU spread? Where does it finally hit its natural, you know, natural end? And we may be starting to see that. Now, does that necessarily mean in 2016 that this starts to reverse and we start to worry about the next great world war being fought in Europe, not in 2016. Maybe if we're doing this in 2050, which for me would be highly improbable, <laughs> but if, if that is the case, that may be something we're talking about. Yeah. These are very slow-moving trends, but something that is definitely happening in Europe. Um, as the union loosens and you have members who would like to not have such a tight union, either monetary union or the EU in general. I would like to turn to Angela Merkel. She has been really the leader in the Eurozone project as well as the EU. Um, She's really been able to hold it together, um, whether people like it or not. Recently in her own country, she has lost some support is it likely that she would lose the elections? And if so, who would step in? Well, no politician ever lasts forever in the job, usually. Uh, you know, it, it, there's an, an old adage that if you're a head football coach, that at some point you will no longer be one. And it's kind of the same is true of, of chancellor, presidents, and prime ministers. Uh, Merkel has been remarkably... Uh, good politician. Um, she, uh, she ousted her mentor, Helmut Kohl. Uh, she has fended off uh, several uh, uh, leaders that tried to unseat her. Uh, she's won elections, and, and she does it by basically never getting out too far over her skis. Um, she rarely takes big risks. Uh, she builds consensus and she moves, she, feel, she kind of figures out what is the country capable of doing, and she moves forward. 
in the refugee situation, she has really kind of gone front and center with this and really kind of pushed the envelope a bit and uh, completely unexpected uh, to some extent. And, and she stuck with it. And in the past, when Merkel would start to get political opposition, she would start to back away from things and build support before she moved forward. Um, this either suggests that she really views this as a, a key issue that they simply have to deal with, or she is finally making a political mistake. Um, I don't know what the answer is. Uh, it's, if, if it is the latter, she will face an internal threat, and uh, the most likely replacement would be her current finance minister, Schwabla. Um who would be, frankly, much uh, stricter. Uh, the, uh, the, the tier countries in Europe would, would face a, much, uh, a, a Germany much more inclined to push them out of the Eurozone uh, than, than Merkel has been. Um, this is something we'll be watching next year. If Merkel falls, uh, the EU project will face a significant threat really depending a lot on who Germany selects as, as their next leader. Yeah. Fragmentation is likely to continue. That, that's kind of it, yes. <laughs> so let's turn to our final issue in the uh, 2016 geopolitical outlook, the trouble in the South China Sea. It's been very interesting to watch China try to project power in South China Sea and the U.S. trying trying to see how far into the islands they could go and who claims the islands. It's, it's simply fascinating. Is there a, a chance that this could blow up big? Well, there is. Uh, it's, it's a low-probability, high-impact event is, is how I would characterize it. So far, both the uh, Xi regime and the Obama administration have been dealing with this delicately, and they have kept lines of communications open, which is, is a really good thing. Um, this gets back to uh, a, a, a something that geopolitical analysts call the Felicity's Trap, where you have an established power trying to cope with a rising power, and what history shows is that these, these issues usually end in conflict. So since the end of the Cold War, uh, and even before that, uh, the United States has, has been a Pacific power, but other countries have had kind of a love-hate relationship with the United States. Um, the Philippines, for example, forced the United States to abandon some significant uh, army and, and air bases in, in, their, in this country during the 90s. Um, Japan and Okinawa have, have been at loggerheads on numerous occasions about U.S. military installations there. Uh, when the countries in Asia didn't see any internal threats, uh, any threats within their region, they tended to want to keep the United States at arm's length. But now with the rise of China and, and the increasing uh, attempts by China to boost its geopolitical heft, we are now starting to see the countries in the region uh, beckon the United States back. So the Philippines that sent told us to go away a couple decades ago 
are suddenly now encouraging us to come back. Vietnam, who the United States fought a war with, is trying to become a significant ally of the United States. Japan has always been an ally, but even those bonds are tightening as Japan um, basically undermines its pacifist con constitution. So you are seeing, a, from China's perspective, what you are seeing is an attempt to ring-fence them, to close them in and close in their aspirations. And China's pushing back against that. Um, this is going to be very difficult to manage. And this really gets back to the first point that we made in our, our earlier broadcast, is that so far the Xi regime and, and the Obama administration uh, have dealt with this in a gingerly cautious manner. Yes, China's pushing and building these you know, bars of sand out in the South China Sea. And the United States has sent ships and planes uh, around these uh, installations. But everything is well telegraphed. You know, you can read about the boat floating in on, on CNN. So there's no big surprise there. And the military still talk to each other. This is, this is being done with, with the attempts to not let this get out of hand. But in November, we're going to elect a new president. And the new president is probably going to have a policy that will seem, or at least, at least in the campaign trail, appear to be much more belligerent than the current one. Uh, China will have to figure out, is this just for the campaign, or is this a new change? And that has to be dealt with. Uh, the, the flip side is, is that China is also going through a significant change in its own economy, uh, growing from anywhere from 4 to 6% GDP growth after growing at 10 to 12% for a number of years. As growth slows down, that creates its own tensions. And one of the ways countries deal with economic problems at home are foreign adventures. So being able to say our growth is slowing down because the United States is encircling us and we need to break out of that encirclement might become a domestic policy tool of the Xi regime to maintain power. So this is something we're watching very carefully. Is it going to be an issue in 16? It could always be an issue. Because anytime planes and boats are floating around, there's always the possibility that some lieutenant goes off and does something they're not supposed to. Assuming this doesn't happen, this is probably going to be higher up the list in 2017, or when we do the mid-year uh, update in June, it may be not fifth anymore, but second or third. Um, this is one we're watching, could pop up any time. So far it's being managed pretty well, but we are going to have to deal with some changes in, in the, in, over the next year. Right. Well, hopefully nothing happens, but... This, uh, hope, is, hope is not a plan. <laughs> that is true. So, the five issues that are most likely to dominate the 2016 geopolitical landscape, the election transition, the rise of Western populism, the rise of small-scale Islamic terrorism, weakening up the EU, and finally, trouble in the South China Sea. We've covered them in the last two podcasts. 
I would like to conclude with looking at the markets and market ramifications. Usually geopolitical events are bearish for risk assets. So if any of these five materialize or escalate, it is likely that equity futures would, um, would be pressured downward. We could also see some higher-grade credit um, see um, pressure. Um, what do you think about the uh, commodity markets? Well, if, if you ended up with, with a, if you look at history, hot wars are bullish for commodities uh, for two reasons. One is you, you use more commodities. Uh, demand goes up. Second thing is that sometimes supply supplies are disrupted, and so you get hoarding, and so you end up seeing increased demand um, and, and tightened supply, and uh, um, that that could certainly be uh, an issue here. And and if if you get a rise of populism, frankly, you might end up actually seeing inflation fears develop. So you. Even though treasuries are kind of the traditional risk uh, adverse asset class, kind of where your flight safety goes, it may not last uh, if that becomes an issue. And so this is this is something that it, it, for investors, uh, this is 2016 is is going to be a year where uh, guidance from your financial advisor uh, is going to be really really important. Great. With that, thank you for listening. If you'd like to read the report, we released it on December 14th. You can go on our website at confluenceinvestment.com and find the geopolitical as well as daily reports, as well as a lot of other materials that we release. Again, thank you for listening. Goodbye, and auf Wiedersehen.